0: we are in Matthew chapter 11 today and if you did not get a handout these guys are gonna put the the rest of them in that little chair just inside the door there and you can grab one here in just a few minutes we're in Matthew chapter 11 we're gonna read verse okay there's the official time I guess we're going to read verses 20 through 30. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Corazon, Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the days of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent And have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. nor, Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, Jesus has has just described the rejection that the Jews had for both John the Baptist and himself. And coming up right after this, Jesus will describe the heavy burdens that the Jewish leadership are putting on the people. And so in between here, he deals with the cities where he's done most of his work. And also issues an invitation for the Jews then, but certainly for all of us as well, to come to him. <clears throat> The message of Jesus tends to be just that of John the Baptist in um, John chapter, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter three. John the Baptist says, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And Jesus, similarly, in Matthew four seventeen, says, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or is near." So Jesus is picking up right where John the Baptist has left off, telling the folks that he's teaching, "The kingdom of heaven is near. It's close. It's coming." And you need to repent. He issued an invitation of sorts in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and broad as the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. Now he turns to three Galilean cities. So these are cities that are around the coast of Galilee. Uh, One, Corazon, we're not really sure about, but it's believed to be a smaller city near Capernaum, as is Bethsaida. Uh, So those are the two smaller cities. Uh, He says, woe to to Corazon, woe woe to Bethsaida, and to Capernaum. So these three cities, cities that um, he did most of his work and it's interesting he he says or Matthew says as he's recording this that Jesus is denouncing these cities in which he did most of his work but if you go back and look in your Bible you will not find a miracle recorded in Corazon matter of fact the only time you'll find it referenced is right here now in Bethsaida You have one miracle recorded. That is the healing of a blind man. It's recorded in Mark. And it's a kind of a two-step healing of this blind man. Uh, He he asked him, can he see? And he says, well, I can see men, but they look like trees. And Jesus touches him again, and he is fully then seeing everything clearly the way it was intended. Uh, Most commentators believe that that was in reference to the poorness of the Jewish Ability to see him. Uh, And really, for us, we see just, you know, dimly right now. And later we will see clearly as we see face to face. So maybe that's where that goes because we know Jesus didn't need any help in healing somebody. But in Capernaum, we find miracle after miracle after miracle a lot of the commentators say five of the ten miracles that are recorded in chapters eight and nine of Matthew were done in Capernaum Um, I'm not so sure about what maybe more than more than that so I listed off a bunch of verses there Uh, some of those are definitely Capernaum some of those might be Capernaum Um, I tend to think that they probably were in Matthew chapter eight, verses five through thirteen, he heals the centurion's servant. We know that was in Capernaum. In uh, also in Matthew eight, verses fourteen and fifteen, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, Peter, Andrew, and um, hmm, Peter, Andrew, and Philip were from Capernaum. So this was, and it and it just naturally flows from the previous verse, so likely it was there. Mark also records this in Mark chapter 1. Um, In verses 16 and 17, it says that he healed many sick and many who were demon-possessed. So we don't have a list then, uh, so you can rack up whatever kind of number you want. Apparently, they were bringing folks from all over who were sick or who were demon-possessed, and Jesus, it says, was healing them. So I don't know how you count that miracle. In um, Matthew chapter 9 verses 1 through, tw- uh, 1 through 8 talks about him being in his hometown. But the reference to that or the, the, the parallel passage in Mark chapter 2 says in Capernaum. So Jesus had kind of relocated his, his area of, of home. No longer is it Nazareth but now it's Capernaum. This is, he says here in Matthew it is his city or his own town. He heals a, lime, a lame man who was carried on a mat, and if you remember, this guy was lowered through the roof because they couldn't get through the crowd to get him up to Jesus, so they tear the roof off and lower him down through the roof. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, he raises the daughter of a synagogue ruler. In uh, verses 20 and tw- through 22, he healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. That kind of interrupts the tale of, of the healing of this daughter, or the raising of this daughter. And then in Mark chapter 1, he heals a man in the synagogue who is possessed with an evil spirit. And then in John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, he heals the son of a royal ruler. So this being a... um, um, Roman kind of person, but John adds this in in John chapter 20 right at the tail end. He says this disciple who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have room uh, for the books that would be written. So he did many, many things. In the previous chapter, John said, uh, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So John says there is tons of things we could have written. As a matter of fact, if we wrote them all down, there wouldn't be enough books around to record them. But we wrote down enough for you to know that Jesus is indeed Messiah. He is the one who is to come. So Jesus denounces these cities and he denounces these cities because they failed to Repent. Um, And this was similar, I guess, to Jonah going to Nineveh. He expected, God expected the entire town of Nineveh to repent. And apparently it did. Well, he did not get that kind of response out of Chorazin or Bethsaida or Capernaum. Since they did not repent, he is denouncing them. Now, Tyre is a, um, Tyre and Sidon are both, Phoenician cities or Philistine cities depending on the time that you uh, gather there. They're coastal cities. They were big into marine kind of things. Uh, they were they were merchants. These were rich cities. Uh, there was a lot of uh, merchandise that trans, uh, transited that area. They were believed to be one of the first to navigate the Mediterranean Sea and set ports in various places and set up uh, I guess satellites in various places, and hence it played into their trade. Um, but both of them were condemned by the prophets as being prideful and wicked. Uh, Isaiah prophesied about one, Jeremiah about the other. And they were, it was said that they would taste the wrath of God because of their failure to do as God had asked. Well, Jesus is saying that if the miracles he performed in Bethsaida and Chorazin were performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Now sackcloth, as you probably know, is a coarse material that's made out of either camel hair or goat hair. Uh, It was something that people would wear when they were in mourning. It was something that they would wear if they were uh, repenting. And oftentimes it was tied with sackcloth sackcloth and ashes. And specifically, when somebody was mourning, they were known to put on this sackcloth and to throw ashes on themselves to simulate that they were in mourning. Uh, Sackcloth was also worn by prophets to show that uh, their own brokenness in the face of the terrible message of judgment that they were bringing on the people or on some nation. And John the Baptist was known as having worn this similar kind of clothing to what Elijah wore, um, believed to be sackcloth. Uh, In Esther, you'll see that sackcloth and ashes were there when Mordecai was uh, crying out to the Lord and fasting in preparation for Esther going before the king. But Isaiah also uses the ashes in a positive way where he says Messiah will give beauty for the ashes in Isaiah 61.3. A symbol that God would bring change through Jesus. He also says of Capernaum, if the miracles performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. You know, Sodom was destroyed for its wickedness. Sodom and Gomorrah were both obliterated from the face of the earth because of their wickedness. Homosexuality was so prevalent in Sodom that that name has stuck with that. Uh, You know, it's sodomy. And they are Sodomites. It's homosexuality. Uh, it's got that name, but Jesus says, if all the things that were done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, it would still be here today. Which really makes you wonder sometimes, doesn't it, why God didn't do that? Why did he not send one of his prophets there to perform all these mighty miracles in Sodom? I don't know. I guess it's kind of like Nineveh. You know, Nineveh repented when Jonah finally got around to going to preach. And, and Jonah, Jonah said, well, I knew that was gonna happen, Lord. That's why I didn't wanna come here in the first place. They repented in sackcloth and ashes. But Nineveh didn't learn its lesson because not too many years later, they were right back to where they were before and God obliterated them. They were taken out. Why? Because they failed to continue in the way that they should have. But it's hard to imagine it's hard to imagine that in the judgment things would be easier for Sodom than it is for Capernaum, isn't it? I mean, we paint an ugly picture of Sodom. A very ugly picture is recorded in the Bible for Sodom. And yet, Jesus says, it is going to be better for them in judgment than it is for Capernaum. Why is that? (laughs) Because they didn't accept Christ's teaching. Exactly right. And not only that, not only did they have... All these miracles taking place and all this teaching that was taking place there from Jesus himself. But Jesus was residing in Capernaum. Capernaum was an arrogant town. They were prideful in their wealth and in uh, the commerce that was taking place there. And yet they completely overlooked the fact that the Son of God was residing in their town. That he was performing miracles. That he was delivering the message. And they were ignoring it. Which says then, I think, that maybe if you are given greater blessings, you also have greater responsibility and you also have a stricter judgment. Hmm. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about uh, the talents? And he said that the master had, had given the talents to his servants according to their ability. One got five, one got two, one got one, or the other version one got ten, one got five, one got one. And what happened? The five got five more, or the ten got ten more. The five got five more, the two got two more, but one in both cases buried his talent and refused to do anything with it. And so he brings it back and the master was disappointed with him. Why? Because he did not take advantage of what he had. He did not use what he had. And he takes it away from him and he gives it to the one that had ten and he said what? To him who has, more will be given. To the one who doesn't, what he has will be taken away. It's the same thing here. Right. So, so what happens to folks who do not know? They have never heard. Never heard of Jesus. I am so glad I don't have to figure that out. <laughs> but I think, but I think. Exactly. Exactly. I, th- I think, just as you're saying, that you are better off to not know than to know and ignore or to know and go against what Jesus has said. boy, I'm glad I don't have to figure that one out either. You know, if we take advantage of our opportunities and we do what we're supposed to do, does that mean that there are levels of heaven that we're going to be, well, you know, you can read verses that tend to imply that, right? This one may be one of them. Those talents may be one of them. Brother Norman believes that. Well, then that settles it, right? No. (laughs) No. I, I don't know. All I do know is what Jesus is saying here. If, if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, it's going to be worse for me than it is for somebody that has never even heard the word of God. Sure. And you do what you're supposed to do. Exactly. That is your talent. That is your talent whatever it is, whether it's writing a letter, whether it's patting people on the back, whether it's taking a meal, whether it's building somebody up, whatever your talent is, it is your duty to use it to the fullest of your ability. If not, then God is going to be angry with you because you did not use the talent that he gave you. Some people are blessed with some talent, there's just lots of talents. Others of us may have one or two but, but you know not everybody can be a that's true that's true. not everybody can be a head not everybody can be a leader but we've got uh, we've got yeah and if you if you look at the body maybe you're a little finger you know maybe you're a little toe. but I told you that thing before too you know what's the most important part of the body yeah. <laughs> My example, you know, you're walking through the house, it's really, really dark at night. You just about get through the door, but your little toe doesn't quite get through the door. It catches on that door jam and goes sideways. What's the most important part of the body? Right then, it's the little toe. Exactly. It's the part that needs to be. Whatever part needs to be, that's the most important part of the body right then and right there. And that's the way it is for us. So, for question 10, you can, you can figure that one out. Jesus then prays to his Father, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. Or another way of saying it was, this was the way that was well-pleasing in your sight. Jesus praises his father first, and then he identifies him as his father second. Then he acknowledges the fact that he is sovereign. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Everything that there is, he is Lord. Then he gives God the credit for this salvation plan. So all of this in this dinky little prayer. All of this in his dinky little prayer. But he says that I praise you because you have not given this to the wise and the learned, but have revealed it to little children. What does that mean? Okay, he's made it easy enough to understand. Exactly. But he has also said that is the wise and the learned haven't figured it out. So the religious elite, those of us who really think we got it figured out, Jesus said, you can't see it. You can't see the forest for the trees. But guess what? The folks that you would not count on The ones that we look down on, those who are religiously ignorant in our sight, the ones that we would call tax collectors and sinners, the humble and the repentant, they can see it. The humble and the repentant, I can reach. The humble and the repentant, those are the ones who can figure it out, God. I am so thankful you laid this plan out this way. So that if you're arrogant, if you think you got it all figured out, you better take a look again. But if you're humble, if you're repentant, if you are truly trying to find out God's will, it will be revealed to you. He goes on to say, all things have been committed to me by my Father. Now he said that before, the writers have said that before. In John chapter 13 verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from God and that He was returning to God. So there's no doubt in Jesus' mind at that point who He is, what His mission was, where He came from and where He's going. And Paul would say in Ephesians 1:22 and 23, God placed all things under His feet, that is Christ, and appointed Him as head over everything for the church who is His body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And then he goes on to say, nobody knows the Father except the Son. Nobody knows the Son except the Father. Nobody knows the Father except the Son. And, he says, to whom the Son will reveal him. So whoever Jesus will reveal the Father to, they also would know the Father. And Now, who else is qualified? Who else is qualified to tell us about God? Absolutely nobody because there's only one person that totally knows God and that is Jesus, the Son. He is the only one that is qualified and he is ultimately and intimately qualified to reveal the Father to you and to me. Not only that, he says we're not going to force it down your throat. We're going to reveal the Father to you. Then it's up to you to take advantage of what we are giving you. Jesus says in in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Nobody. That's the only way, through Jesus. In his prayer, in John chapter 17, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, his 12 disciples or apostles. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that's all of us, that they all may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity so the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. He says, first off, that the two of us are together so that the world can believe. But he gets down to the end, he says, so the world may know. Believe that you sent me, know that you sent me. Then Jesus offers his invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. The weary is talking about the internal part. The burden is the, is the external, the load that has been laid upon you. Likely, Jesus was referring to the Jews in this particular case because of the burden that was being placed on them by the Pharisees and the religious elite. But there can be no doubt that his message really applies to the poor, the lost, and the ruined sinner. The man burdened with a consciousness of his transgression. The one who is trembling at the danger of God's judgment. The one who is seeking deliverance. And there is relief. And that relief is found in Christ. Believe in him. Trust in him. And him only for salvation. This rest is uh, a, the word is A-N-A-P-A-U-S-I-S. It's like Anna pause, which is like pause. Ooh, that's kind of neat, isn't it? And it means give rest, refresh, renew, revive. Or it could be referring to relief after a, a hard day of labor or a long journey. It's used in the Old Testament a lot and it's used in the New Testament as well. Everybody wants rest and God is advertising his rest. And in Hebrews chapter four verses 1 through 11, he says, the rest is not here. It is not now. It is a rest that is coming. That rest is eternal and it is in heaven. We studied that uh, when we were looking at um, Hebrews. He also talks about a little farming here. He says, take my yoke upon you. A yoke was to join two animals together so that they could pull equally. Uh, It was often common to harness a younger animal with an older animal so that the younger could learn from the older. That's kind of what we're doing here, right? We're being yoked with Jesus. And not only that, this yoke is a yoke that fits. It's not one that was just cut for anybody. It was cut for you. It fits you. So it doesn't chafe. It doesn't irritate. It fits you, and it fits you perfectly. The New Testament, this word yoke is used to denote servitude. Christ's yoke is an obligation to receive him as Messiah. It is an obligation to believe his doctrine... It is an obligation to be all things conformed to his word, and it's an obligation to yield to his spirit. The, this invitation can be, can be kind of divided into some steps here. Uh, the first is the come. He says, come to me. The Pharisees said, do. Jesus says, come. Come to me. All you who are, are weak and heavy laden, It means to come to him and trust him. It's an invitation that is open to all. It's not like pharisaical legalism. The second is, he says, take, take my yoke upon you. So the first one is come, the second one is take. When we come to Jesus, we come to him in faith that he will give us rest And and we will find peace. And we find first peace with God. When your sins are washed away, what happens? You have peace with God. The second is, the more you are with Him and the more you learn about Him, the more you study Him, you find the peace of God. The peace that passes absolutely all understanding, that is beyond your comprehension, that is hard to take in. You find peace with God, you also find the peace of God. And it means, when you take on this yoke, that you're becoming a disciple. It's kind of like I was saying earlier with the younger. In this case, our older brother Jesus with you or me in that yoke together. And this easy means well-fitting. So he has a yoke that is tailor-made for you and your needs. Isn't that nice to know? It's not just a stock item. It was made just for you, just for me. And then the third thing he says is to learn. As we learn more about him, we find a deeper peace And we also find the blessings in Him as we trust Him more. Life is simplified and unified around the person of Jesus. The invitation, as I said, is for all. So how do we demonstrate our love and our appreciation for Jesus? Well, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. John 14, 15. He also goes in a little more detail, a little bit further down in that chapter, verses 23 and 24. He says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him. We will make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father. Come, take my yoke, and learn of me. To learn is to be a disciple. That's what Jesus wants us to do, to come and to learn. The result is we have rest. We have rest with the Father and we have the rest of the Father. And we will have eternal rest one of these days. Now next week we are going to look at Luke chapter 9 verses 28 through 36 which is the transfiguration of Jesus. And I know there's at least two accounts of that, maybe three. So you might want to look at all of them because I'm sure I will get around to looking at all three accounts to kind of blend.